Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of The Network Age, and we're excited to be here with you. A lot happening in crypto land, in Network Age land, and this really builds well on our last episode in which we were discussing what we thought would were the major catalysts in movement toward this Network Age. And now we've arrived at a point in the present day where a few big things are happening, in particular what we might call state attacks on the sovereignty of crypto. We have, of course, the tornado cash arrests, and to a lesser degree, I think we're interested in the prosecution of several Coinbase employees for insider trading. So this is big news, boys. What do you think? Are they coming for us? Are they they dropping the hammer? I had a very similar reaction to this. Uh, as I did for maybe, you know, without going, repeating the last episode too much, but uh, when the war started, like, you get this feeling of, like, when when the, tor- the um, tornado news came out of, like, all right, it's on, it's happening. And that provides a lot of clarity. I don't think I really get upset or afraid, particularly when I see a lot of other people also having energy activated by this event. And so if I was going to go by analogy to the war, I think having the war start and then seeing... Uh, the West like unify very hard in terms of sanctions and eventually military aid felt, you know, you, you could see it wasn't at all certain before the war that would happen. And you could see that happening. And to a similar degree, I see this sort of inchoate energy starting to build in crypto Twitter, crypto podcasts, like crypto land in general, where people aren't exactly sure what they want to do, but they know that this does activate something and that to some degree, the thing that we've always talked about is coming now. And when I say the thing we've always talked about, what we're, what we're dealing with specifically is hardcore enforcement of not interacting with certain crypto addresses and completely throwing out the window, you know, any consideration as to whether they're persons or whether this is code. It's very much just a raw power play of from, from the, you know, from treasury side of, we don't particularly care what these addresses represent, whether they're smart contracts or persons who are able to be controlled. We don't like them, and you can't do anything with them. And I think that for the last 10 years, people who have been anticipating crypto attacks have actually been surprised that particularly the U.S. government has not done an attack like this where they're like, oh, you know what, you have all your fancy little reasoning about you know why this is just code or free speech or whatever, but you know what, screw that. We have policies we want to enforce we're going to enforce them. And so for me, what I'm interested in getting into on this episode is what are, given that for reasons I'll go into, I do not agree with Treasury's uh, policy decisions here, as I think, you know, lots of other members of, you know, U.S. constituency, U.S. government, uh, legislature uh, also don't necessarily agree with. And given that, I'm very interested in the possibilities now that I think we're seeing significant activation energy and willingness for people to acknowledge this is time to do something. We're not going to be, you know, the frog boiling in progressively hotter water. You want to arm the crypto lads. I am very, very hesitant to use such inflammatory language, Mr. Fed. (laughs) Um, I'm, I'm ready to... I'm extremely excited that a large amount of law-abiding Americans and people around the world are interested in pushing back on this using extremely, you know, legal means and democratic processes. 
Yeah, I think it was one of these huge moments in crypto, like, um, and just in the world. I saw a lot of energy happening, um, actually, at like the individual developer level, because unlike other times they've attacked, like Coinbase getting hit for insider trading, or like Ross Ulbrich getting hit for Silk Road, both of those times, like those prior times, and there's other instances, you could be like, well, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't a good thing to do. That like you know, is potentially problematic or just simply people didn't see themselves in those people's shoes. Whereas now with the Tornado Cash, like a lot of people have used Tornado Cash. Everyone knows that like Bitcoin isn't private and like privacy is sort of an expectation of, of I'd say crypto. It's like a core value in crypto. And so with, uh, with Bitcoin, if you're just doing a normal on-chain transaction, there's like absolutely no privacy. And so regular people have been using um, have been using Coinbase and just kind of talk about, I've uh, been using Tornado Cash and like to go into what exactly happened, I would say, so you have Tornado Cash uh, thought of as like a mixer that's basically mixing, um, for example, ETH together um, and then essentially putting in a lot of funds together and then um, the funds can go out to different addresses. So you basically can't see the source of funds. Um, you know, that sounds shady, right? You're like, oh, this could be used for illicit purposes. And like, but let's take a step back and just think, you know, a road is used for illicit purposes, like money, cash is used for illicit purposes, like almost any technology, things that are a technology can be used for any purpose. Um, and in fact, they often are like the legacy banking sector is used all the time for illicit purposes and like no one went to jail. So that's one of the weirdest things here, right? Um, with Tornado Cash, they arrested an individual developer in Amsterdam. And that's not coincidental. It happened in Amsterdam, which is a country very aligned with the US. Um, but then you look at like, okay, what about all the times um, the banks were used to like launder money for the gangs? Like if you just Google, like Google banks laundering money, Damn there's the just banks. like bankless, right? Bankless. Um, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And so it's really interesting. Like a lot of people say like, well, you know, this is being used for illicit means and like, you know, this is shady, but like the regular banking sector is used for illicit means all the time. And no one has gone to jail when that's been, even when there was like active hundreds of billions of like money laundering shown with like the cartels, uh, there wasn't, no one went to jail. And so I just want to dig into a few things that's really interesting. I think there is a lot of energy forming. I think that's because people are seeing themselves in this, like they've used Tornado Cash or they could see why they would use Tornado Cash. Um, I think it really sinks into the sort of broader cypherpunk theme that was like very active in the 90s about like code is speech. And I actually hadn't realized that like they won in those court cases, like code was ruled speech in the US. So actually like you could say Tornado Cash is protected speech and you would actually have a very strong legal precedent for that. And so actually the, interestingly, the, um, you know, the strong position is actually crypto here. It's actually that like Tornado Cash's code was speech and that you can't actually uh, arrest someone for speech. So just a few thoughts there. Okay. If we want to have a productive discussion about Tornado Cash, I think it's very important to separate a few different ways of talking about it because the means you were using of talking about it had a, a few different separate angles uh, the one you finished with there about uh, the, the court wins of the cypherpunks gets into the realistic prospects of victory uh, for, you know, let's say the, let's call it the open crypto side. Uh, whereas the stuff about, you know, 
the bank's role in money laundering is much more of a, you know, talking point in order to combat potential other talking points. And so I think this entire, this entire issue has sort of these very, you know, raw will to power sides where you're thinking about uh, what can, what's likely to actually be able to be done. I think the court cases part gets at that. Uh, I think then there's like the part about, you know, what kind of messaging lets you get people on your side, et cetera. So when I was leading off right here, I was focusing initially on the fact that a lot of people have thought, regardless of the moral aspects, that this type of attack was coming, where regulators would say, um, that, you know, we, we want to ban this, we don't care about all your reasons, you know, sort of your whataboutism related to banks or your free speech arguments or what have you, we just want to ban this thing. And I think, you know, the motives for that are pretty obvious in a lot of ways. Like, you can say whatever's gone through the banking system, but, you know, U.S. like agencies feel like they have visibility and control into that where they still have levers to pull. And this is very clearly a case of a thing where they feel that if they don't use these very blunt tools, then they don't have levers to pull. I think you're exactly right, Tim, that... Everybody knows and understands, including the U.S. government, that there are completely legitimate reasons that a normal person would want to use Tornado Cash, would want privacy, would not want all of their transactions and very personal, private financial interactions to be publicly available on the blockchain. But that's not what this is about, right? This is about power, wanting to keep power and seeing crypto and other tools building escape velocity and wanting to exercise some control before it's too late for them to do anything about it. And I think that just saying that this is a tool that is capable for evil is totally beside the point when what they want to do is just rein in a growing sector while it's still, while that tool is still available to them. Yeah, I'd say like, um, yeah, they're definitely trying to rein it in. Interestingly, though, this is very similar to what happened in the 90s. Um, they tried to rein it in. You know, the Clinton administration came down very hard on crypto. And at the time, like, just the technology of cryptography was listed as like a weapon export, you know? So actually, interestingly, we, uh, you know, the government has done this in the past. The government was doing that more like proactively, like there wasn't really an exact, they just realized that like, cryptography was a risk to their power, I think, in the 90s. And then like what happened and like it kind of goes back to sort of my rhetorical argument with uh, the banks, right? Where like they were able to basically say like, hey, this is a common good. This is just like a technology that'll be good for humanity. And the public actually got behind it. How did the public get behind it in the 90s? Interestingly, and this is all in the sort of like before Bitcoin series, which is a really good series I highly recommend. And how the how the public got behind it was basically like actually journalists got behind it. So it was basically a alliance of like journalists, uh, rich people who had made it big in the 80s and early 90s in software, in the software revolution. Um, and so like Steve Wozniak was basically just like anyone, whenever like, you know, the FBI was doing raids, so sort of similar to Tornado Cash in the 90s. Um, and people would network together, and then they would basically, Steve Wozniak was like, you know, I'm willing to infinitely bankroll legal challenges to this. And so that's like, uh, so there was this like interesting combination. I'm curious, um, Tim, what you see is sort of like the combination of people today kind of fighting against this. Like, I think you probably have just like seen a few things in that regard. 
Yes. In the past, let's say one year, uh, maybe a little bit more, there's been an extremely rapid growth in, in efforts to educate legislators, lobby, uh, set up things for exactly this type of eventuality. So I think Coin Center is actually like fairly well funded. A16Z puts in a lot of money to the you know general Web3 lobby in DC. I forget who the lady is running it. Maybe um, Kristen Smith. Ah, I, I need to I need to look up her name and I'll put it in. But they've they've done very strong advocacy and these are extremely heavy hitters. And they've had an extremely strong impact in the opinions of legislators towards crypto to the point where there are significant there, there's significant support for a complete overhaul uh, on the legislative side of this. And my point in mentioning all that, I think we can get into the prospects of a challenge later. But in order to tie this into your 90s like cypherpunk history, I think that if you went at the time and told a random person in 1994 that, you know, the entire Clinton administration is against this, they're going to tell the public that uh, this will, you know, this kind of technology will be used for all kinds of horrible activity, terrorism, what have you. And people think that terrorism is just a post 9-11 issue. But in the 90s, I mean, you absolutely had like, you know, the Oklahoma City bombings, the World Trade Center bombings. Like, I mean, I grew up in that era and terrorism was very much on people's minds and was very much considered a lever you could use over people. And so I think people would have been very surprised if you told them that and then said the government would actually lose to on legal challenges, to public opinion in general for this sort of seemingly obscure issue uh, that a lot of people weren't, weren't using yet. And so I think the main point that I want to make there is that when people look at these situations, uh, there's a tendency to use this horrible phrase of the government. And that fails to take into account historically in both the recent past and, you know, even further back that, you know, the U.S. government is made up of lots of different entities and interests. And we've seen lots of ways in which they can fight each other and sort of be brought into conflict. And also, you know, there are multiple governments in the world, although you can question the degree to which, like, you know, let's say EU governments have, you know, freedom of movement in that regard. So what do you think is like, what do you think were the factors that led to success in the 90s? And like, can that same playbook be applied today? Or is the playbook different? If any, I think the same playbook can be heavily applied today. I think you had a group of people who had coalesced very strongly around the, you know, the coordination point of, we want to be able to use encryption for a variety of reasons. And also with maybe a, a, a tinge of, enabling this type of technical innovation in America and this type of, you know, what amounts to almost financial innovation and how it was used for online shopping and things like that uh, will be a big factor in maintaining American wealth and power. I think that was persuasive. I think having people like Wozniak supply sort of, you know, an indefinite bankroll was important, although I would note that the amount of money you need to maintain legal challenges in the U.S. is high but not infinite, like in the tens or hundreds of millions gets you there. And we've seen that actually with Ripple right now, sort of tying down the SEC pretty much indefinitely uh, by having large resources at its disposal, but you know probably only in the tens of millions for their legal bills. And so I think the other thing we have now is relative to the cypherpunks, there's a much, much broader base of people who care about using crypto. I mean, in America right now, it's at least in the millions or maybe tens of millions of people who like this and want to keep using it. And that's actually much more than you had for 
people who care about encryption. So I think there's this combination of bankrolling, people who care about it, uh, a growing and strong lobby, uh, educated legislators. It's, it's honestly, in my opinion, a much, much stronger position and the ability of people to activate very rapidly over the internet on things like Twitter has been extremely apparent during this episode. Yeah, and that's really interesting, that point about, you know, in the 90s, it was just the cypherpunks. And like, there wasn't, this was like, almost like pre-internet age. There wasn't even like a broad set of people using the internet yet. Whereas with crypto, it's kind of fascinating in that like, you know, not only is there a broad set of people, but they actually have like a lot of their resources invested into this thing. So they're almost like a one topic voting class. Like we saw this with like the infrastructure bill and Bitcoin. And while that infrastructure bill, which I think we can kind of get into later, was ultimately like kind of a disaster for crypto, there was, it was also an organizing point. And we saw that like actually Bitcoiners have a ton of lobbying power and crypto more broadly has a ton of lobbying power. And I wonder, do you think that's because of the fact that people have this incentive, this like financial interest now in crypto? I think that it's a combination of, I think the financial interest helps a lot. And I think that also it's sort of self-perpetuating, which is as more people have a financial interest and its market crap grows, there's more money available to do things like lobbying um, and paying lawyers, which are mm -hmm. both extremely important activities in the American context. I mean, this is what uh, Curtis Yarvin said on the most recent podcast he did with uh, Justin Murphy, where he said that if crypto people wanted to be smart, what they should really do is take all their money and use it to lobby. Like that was the biggest thing that they could I, get involved in. Curtis, <laughs> Curtis has been for over 10 years predicting the death of Bitcoin. He's kind of like, or of crypto in general in this exact way. He's kind of like a tether truther for Bitcoin. So while he's correct, I think like that's, it's happening. And I, I think the other thing is there are diminishing returns, like in the American system, as I was saying, like, you know, tens or hundreds of millions make a difference. I'm not sure. Once you get to billions, you have to be using it to like explicitly fund political campaigns in terms of influencing existing people there. And it's questionable whether, you know, that's the best use of resources until you've established some I mean, traction. tell that to Bloomberg, you know. <laughs> How much money did he blow on that? That was one <laughs> yeah. of the funniest things ever. It was I mean, just a complete incineration. An incredible, incredible. I mean, the thing is, like, what, what did we learn there is that you can go, you can, if you have infinite money, you can buy, I don't know, 20% of the vote maybe, just mm -hmm. like up. But, like, it's, uh, you really can't get past that. Though I think this is sort of... Um, pivoting away from some of the stuff I was interested in with, you know, lobbying and, and talking to government government agencies that are beginning to regulate this stuff. I'm interested what you guys think. Is any regulation over regulation? Because I think there are a lot of people in crypto land who feel that way, who say, hands off our money. We want you to have nothing to do with this. And I think as we look at these two big events, um, Tornado Cash and the Coinbase arrests, we, it's easy to come down on different sides with those two issues. We can think that, all right, arresting these coders and, and freezing people's money and sanctioning people who have contributed to this uh, protocol is overreach. This is a tool that has real uses. This is not inherently evil. We're against it. And you look at something like Coinbase, you know, a lot of the people on like Bankless have said, you know, the, this is not securities. How could it be insider trading? But I think that we can agree, hey, it's it's bad behavior if you're a Coinbase employee to start trading with the knowledge you have about what coins are going to be listed without 
before the public knows. So what, how do we decide what actions can and can't be taken from larger institutions? Yeah, so I think something that's really important here is that you have to like recognize your own limitations and like, you know, people had very, very dumb ideas that were wrong about the internet early on and even fairly late. Like everyone knows the Paul Krugman article about how like the internet has no value. And that was like, that's a top influencer. Um, and so these things take a very long time to play out to actually get the real value, to understand the real value from a new technology. And I'd say we're like fundamentally when you have that situation, it is much, much better for humanity broadly, for like the public interest to let the innovation run its course. And like, will people get wrecked? Yeah, some will get wrecked, but like crypto already has a reputation of like being dangerous. So the people gambling in crypto, like they know what they're doing. Like, come on, everyone, everyone knew what they were doing when they were like gambling on Dogecoin. Uh, my boss was like, oh yeah, my best friend from high school is like buying a Lamborghini with his like Dogecoin winnings. Like, yeah, people knew what they were doing, gambling. The same thing was happening with mean stocks. Um, so yeah, innovation takes a new technology, especially something as fundamental as crypto, similar to the internet. It needs a lot of time to develop so that we can actually see the value in what that and how the public will ultimately start using it. In terms of laws, I would say it's completely fine to apply old laws like we already have laws against insider trading. So if someone starts insider trading a token, yeah, let's just apply, you know, the basic like securities laws against them. Um, they're basically, you know, they're working for a regulated company, Coinbase. So the law is already applied. I think it was a pretty straightforward case in that regard, the sort of like insider trading component. There's a lot more to that Coinbase um, case, like why the government decided to hit those people and not others that we'll go into later. But I would say, Kind of broadly speaking, it takes a lot longer than we think. And in crypto, like this last cycle, like this 2021, we saw so many new narratives form, like Uniswap. You know, even in 2020, like early 2020, I wasn't hearing much about Uniswap, and people were still like in like top podcasts talking about like, will DEXs be a thing and how will those work? Are they even feasible? And they were like so small in market size. And then Uniswap just like blew up um, in a good way. And so I think like, the core value of crypto, people haven't, we haven't given it enough time for these to develop. Um, it's going to need, frankly, I think a lot more time. And in that context, you do not want to be regulating because like people like Paul Krugman are like so incredibly wrong, even late into the internet that like, if you have people like that, like Paul Krugman's a lot smarter than your average government bureaucrat. And so if you just let, if you unleash the bureaucrats onto new tech, you're going to get things that are a lot worse than Paul Krugman. And kind of one point related to that is like when the FBI was unleashed on the cypherpunks and they were getting like basically their doors broken in and people are like, you're a hacker, you're an evil like hacker. And people are like, uh, no, we're not. And like, there's this interesting story in the Before Bitcoin uh, series where it's like, you know, a guy has a four hour conversation with an FBI agent at his home and the FBI agent has like no basic understanding of computers, cryptography, like almost any of the relevant technology. And so it's the kind of like talking that that's like what uh, you'd be doing that at scale by turning over crypto to bureaucrats at this very, very early phase in, in crypto. <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's all magical fake things. We should read that Krugman quote for those yeah, who don't know. Tim, you want to read the Krugman? <laughs> yeah. So he said in 1998, 
The growth of the internet will slow drastically as the flaw in Metcalfe's law, which states that the number of potential connections in a network is proportional to the square of the number of participants, becomes apparent. Most people have nothing to say to each other. By 2005 or so, it will become clear that the internet's impact on the economy has been no greater than the fax machines. So if I get into my opinion on, you know, how much regulation is too much regulation or what I want, I agree Bitchell, that we have to start from the premise that a government on its territory will try to do uh, regulation of, you know, uh, you know, most of most of what it can. Uh, I think a lot of people would would agree that some things are desirable. And further, for the people who think that some things aren't desirable, like if you take my case, I don't have huge issues with the Coinbase case on its face. um, And I think that, you know, what's happening with Tornado is a hill to die on. I think you have to acknowledge that for people like me, there are limited resources. There's limited attention. There's limited number of court cases you can bring. There's limited amounts of things you can try to get into legislation. And so you have to focus really, really hard on, given what I would like to see in the world, what is the you know pressure point that I should really focus on that I think will unlock things. So while I have you know a variety of maybe idiosyncratic views on the value of securities laws and things like that... I don't think that that's particularly the place to push because I think that even if there were a liberalization of American securities laws, I don't think I would necessarily be that much closer to the world I want. Whereas the key precondition for the world I want, sort of a parallel digital economy and sort of society where people can form their own uh, states, groupings, uh, like software projects, capital formation, that absolutely does require... uh, very a very large market cap programmable money uh, that do, that has good off ramps in a number in you know at least enough jurisdictions where the people using it would want uh, would want to live, and so for that uh, the tornado thing is a significant threat and I think is worth focusing as many resources as possible on it because a lot of the other stuff that people want. Go, you know, goes through that. And I also think that in terms of regulating things like, you know, insider trading at the exchange level, uh, that ability doesn't go away if you have that. And the U.S. still preserves its ability and individual municipalities, uh, states, um, the federal government as a whole, preserve their ability to like, you know, regulate how they want life in the U.S. to be to a large degree. Uh, But I still get my awesome parallel digital world to play in. So I think in terms of how much regulation is too much for what I want, my answer would be uh, making programmable open money stay that way, especially at a global level, is extremely important to me. And I think Trump's pretty much every other goal and it completely cuts across things like, you know, party lines or other policy considerations. So Tim, like where would you invest, say like a hundred million on this like kind of lobbying? Would it like how much would go to kind of like domestic US policy? Um, Like would you put it into senators? Would you put it into fighting legal cases? And then how much would go kind of like ex-US into maybe creating crypto-friendly jurisdictions abroad that might be able to put pressure on the US by, you know, kind of like how Dubai has put pressure on the EU by like having like a very easy place to do business. It's like Mm -hmm. put pressure on a lot of sort of doing business in the EU more broadly. So the nice thing about creating a like crypto friendly jurisdictions overseas is that that naturally sucks in so much investment money if done right that you don't like when you're talking about if you have a hundred million to invest I'm kind of assuming that a lot of that is down the drain and so that's like you would be able to attract just 
a ton of outside capital from other people. And so in some sense, that part's almost free. And I would just spend in the low millions of that money, sort of just laying the groundwork and making mm -hmm. sure stuff was going well. Uh, at the legal case level, I think would be where I would focus a lot of stuff because that has such outsized impact when you have one specific thing you want, which is, you know, for example, to allow tornado mixing to happen without uh, that causing problems at U.S. off-ramps. So I would, I would invest probably in the tens of millions there, probably up to somewhere like 50 million. And then for the rest, I would look at, you know, the most targeted ways to... Uh, I would probably look at, I, I think the approach that the lobbies in D.C. are taking right now is basically right in terms of doing things at a broader lob lobbying level as opposed to trying to get specific people elected because I don't think that, I, I think it scales much better because I think a lot of politicians don't have strong pro or anti-crypto positions right now. And so giving compelling narratives and political benefits for them for doing it is, I think, in my opinion, much better than, you know, funding their challengers in, mo you know, in most cases. Yeah, everybody takes money. Yeah, everybody takes money and everybody, a lot of people can get into narratives of, that build American prosperity um, in very clear ways. I was saying I was on Justin Murphy's podcast yesterday. That'll come out soon. And I was saying that America as a whole seems to have this almost institutional knowledge of how to not kill geese that lay the golden eggs in a way that, you know, Europe uh, and other hmm. countries don't. Where I think a big part of the story of the cypherpunks in the 90s is I, I wonder how much of that was inevitable where there is this almost instinct at a lot of levels of the U.S., from the judiciary to, you know, legislators to administrations, where they do kind of sense, like, this is a big industry. If we can enable it in America and still be able to, you know, extract uh, taxes from it, this is going to be a good thing for us. I mean, that's the thing about a technology like cryptocurrencies, I mean, much like Tornado Cash, it isn't innately one thing, right? It's a tool that people can bring their lens, their point of view to. So I think what you're saying about lobbying politicians makes sense because whether you're like far left, far right, or any anywhere in between, you can make a case that crypto will work for you. You know, you're either removing um, regulatory barriers to your free market or you're democratizing access to financial institutions, you can really say what you want about this technology and your mind is going to going to take it there to whatever view you already have. Though I think, Tim, my, my important question for you and your money is, is how much are you investing in the line in uh, Saudi Arabia? I assume many, many millions. <laughs> so the funny thing about the line that I, someone pointed out on Twitter is it's one of those projects where you, you can see like, you know, the kind of glimmering video of it. And then for people who think logistically and practically, the first thing your mind goes to is, okay, you have like whatever, a hundred miles of a hundred foot, or I don't even know how long tall it was, 500 foot high, like glass. Like, can you imagine just how quickly that will get covered with crud and sand with like almost no amount of money able to like, you know, maintain it and do all this. It's, I don't know if that's really relevant to this conversation, but I guess it, I would say that I think about these things very, very <laughs> logistically. It, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I want to like pull up a, a tweet actually from Ryan Adams, um, uh, it's a really interesting one. The singer or uh, no 
from, uh, you know, a small little podcast, but um, they had interviewed Balaji, right, uh, about a week before the Tornado Cash thing. And then we're tweeting out um, from Bankless's account, like, after, after Tornado Cash, like, you know, we need to start a crypto-native country. And they listed out seven things. It's kind of interesting. And this sort of connects to the line. Oh, yeah, the line, I saw this. Yeah, and the line's like one of these things where it's like, okay, we're building a physical city and like Praxis is into that. Um, you know, that's a pretty small project, but like a lot of people are kind of talking about building cities. Um, Ryan Adams has an interesting one listing out the seven. I'm kind of curious about your guys' take on these seven for a crypto-native country. But it's a constitution for digital freedom. I think that's sort of like saying... Um, we've, we've kind of talked about the Bill of Rights enshrouded in crypto tools. Um, I think it's sort of like, to me, like number one is kind of like saying um, code is speech. The second is Ethereum property rights. You could just say like crypto property rights pretty broadly on that one. Uh, smart contract law, ETH or BTC backed currency, uh, NFT citizen IDs. So basically identity, LinkedIn, you know, for Urbiters, we basically, we already have number five. Number six is a DeFi banking system. Number seven is DAOs for capital formation. And then later they say UN recognition. Although it's worth mentioning, I think in the discussion, people ask like, oh, do we need to have a physical country? Do we need to build our own? And he's like, why don't we just use ones that exist? So I'm curious about your guys' thoughts on like, what is this crypto native country? If it's not the line, if it's not in Saudi Arabia in this like, what, 300 kilometer straight line, uh, what does... <laughs> What does like a friendly jurisdiction look like? Like, should we bother? Should we build our own? Should we partner with one that already exists? And like, which of those seven things that I listed out are actually important? What do you mean by build our own? Because that affects my answer a lot. So it's sort of like doing what Prospera did, where they got a uh, basically exclusive rights to a jurisdiction. And... Um, yeah, so they got exclusive rights to the jurisdiction, and then they could basically, um, from there, um, put any law they want in place. So they like they had full control of the entire thing. Okay, I get where you're going now with re- using Prospera as the example. And just to be clear in terms of how we're framing this, we were just talking a second ago about, you know, what are the options for reforming the U.S.? And a similar playbook would apply somewhere like the EU, although in my opinion, they're sort of less responsive and don't have that same institutional instinct to, you know, preserve, like, preserve wealth. So on the global scale, I think that working with existing jurisdictions is a far preferable approach to uh, creating your own. And the reason is that if you, if you create your own, you're still subject to a lot of the same problems in terms of needing to get everyone, you know, aligned who's, you know, who's working with it, et cetera. You're still going to be at the whim of some larger jurisdiction. And so it probably reduces to the same problem. But also I think that the laws you need in what we'll call the physical world to have a good life while you participate in the parallel crypto economy are just aren't particularly crazy by the standards of anything. And as you noted, like, you know, Dubai is already there to a large degree, although I think they could do things significantly better and I don't have any desire to live there. But in terms of what it would take for a jurisdiction to be good, I don't think you need any super libertarian laws. You just need good off-ramps for crypto, 
uh, probably tax policies that range towards collecting things in the form of value-added tax and not things like capital gains or income, just because it's going to be a lot easier to collect at point of sale. You could do, if you're anticipating significant real estate activity, I think stamp taxes like they do in the Cayman Islands uh, work quite well for generating like you know significant funding. And after that, uh, you also probably are going to want to have fairly liberal securities laws, but that's not like a huge change. There's plenty of examples of countries that have that. So I don't think any of this is a particularly huge ask that would necessitate redoing governance from the ground up and also having it be extremely unstable and at the whim of whatever jurisdiction is letting it be there. I just think it's a much, much more executable vision that's also probably more appealing to people who would want to live there and also probably scales a lot better. You can you can deliver this service to millions of people and also probably uh, make the lives of millions of people living in that jurisdiction already better. Yeah. So like, you know, it's interesting. So let's just take El Salvador as like a case study, right? So there we have, we have off ramps from crypto. There's like Bitcoin ATMs, also the banks accept crypto as legal tender. So you have off ramps. Um, you also have, you know, where we proposed Dow law to them, which would legalize kind of a, basically a new, you could think of it as almost like adding like a new class of corporation, like LLC, C Corp, Dow. Who is we in this case? Uh, let's just say like, like people, well, both Steven Gelbach, but also just sort of broader, uh, crypto entrepreneurs who are setting up companies in El Salvador and lobbying to get, uh, DAOs legalized in El Salvador. So I'd say crypto entrepreneurs with the help of Steven Gelbach as legal counsel. Okay. I'm trying to think. And then, uh, sorry, sorry. And then one third point is like, basically like a residency law. So like El Salvador has been talking about citizen by investment. I know you have a ton of ideas on citizenship by investment, but if we just take those three broad things, like, okay, DAOs are legal. So like crypto companies are legal. Uh, we have off ramps for crypto and fiat and we have place that we are like can legally reside here as citizens. Are there other things that were like missing in that kind of plate of like what creates a jurisdiction as crypto friendly? Uh, I would say the only thing missing is I would recommend the jurisdiction to have like pretty much no securities laws except for like things relating to outright fraud and really focus on things like fraud because what that enables is you get to do a lot of capital formation and just as importantly one thing we've seen it's a, a very negative trend in my opinion after the ICO boom is that people still do random stuff that raises a lot of money in crypto of very questionable value. They just raise it all, like the money only privately from VCs. And so what that means is that all of the good projects go to VCs and anything that's left for the public is just, you know, generally crappy. So you get this big adverse selection. And also it's just, it's just really hard to provide interesting capital formation of the type that like birthed Ethereum, for example, which was like an extreme wealth generating event for a lot of like kind of, you know, just normal weird people who are really into technology. And it would be cool to, you know, bring that back. It's sort of interesting because like in that case, you know, like this laundry list of like seven things were down to like four and they seem like pretty doable in the case that like, you know, software already to some extent wants to do this for what they've said to us when they're pivoting from crypto to Bitcoin. And it seems like I don't know. I'm kind of thinking about the factors that like, why don't we have this yet? And I think part of it is sort of what you talked about with, you know, crypto is still maybe too small. Although interestingly, Bitcoin was enough to get it legalized by, by two countries. Um, but if I think about other factors, like why don't we have this? I kind of wonder if it's just like we haven't 
sufficiently organize the crypto entrepreneurs with this objective of like a crypto friendly country for crypto broadly on these like four aspects that we just discussed. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there is clearly so much energy and money in the space. And while it still needs to grow, there isn't necessarily broad alignment that this is the goal, a sort of network state or that for something a little bit less um, pie in the sky than that term implies, just creating environments that are friendly to Web3 organization. And I think that once it becomes clear that governments like the U.S. are putting energy into tornado cash-like sanctions and seizing assets and stopping development, as is happening now, then a ton more energy is going to move in that direction. Though I think it is important to note that as we're we're going over this list, we have not said once what we actually need is a physical state and uh, what you need is to work with other jurisdictions. Because I think that in looking at Balaji's network state vision, it's always been a question of how do we get um, governments to, to go along with this really radical change that he's suggesting. And I've always been skeptical of the idea that any sort of sovereign country, especially a, a developed one, would allow that type of behavior on their on their land. But slowly creating these jurisdictions in places like El Salvador makes a lot more sense. When we're talking about tornado, it's almost like you're talking about a catalyst here. And I think one part of the tornado catalyst <laughs> that we hadn't mentioned is that up until Tornado Cash, this is, I can't keep track of time on the internet anymore. I guess it's a week ago. I have honestly no idea, maybe two weeks, like time doesn't exist normally at this point. Uh, before that, there had been this assumption, and I know it explicitly from talking to you know VCs in the space, projects in the space, people pretty much thought that if you followed a certain set of rules, you could keep doing your stuff in the US. And Tornado very much either called that into question or showed there's going to be a big fight ahead. And to fight such a fight, it's very useful to be able to like even, you know, park your physical body in another jurisdiction. It's a lot easier to fight legal battles when you're not, you know, in danger of going to jail randomly. So it gives you a lot of leverage. And so I think the biggest catalyst of Tornado Cash is that it's now created an appetite for, before people were not even asking, okay, what are the four things we need or seven things we need? Now they're asking those questions. And so the next thing that we need is now that they have that appetite and there's that activation energy, uh, we and others need to supply them with what are the realistic, important, concise asks for jurisdictions uh, that if they fulfill them, we'll be able to give them a substantial GDP boost on the order of, for something like El Salvador, I can easily, you know, do back of the napkin numbers where they could 10x their GDP within a few years. It's, it's pretty insane. Mm. And interestingly, like GDP actually grew 10x, uh, sorry, not 10x, uh, 10% last year. So like not a ton from the kind of Bitcoin bump. And when I had meetings with the El Salvadorians, they were like, how do we make this actually develop the entire country? How do we get to like a 10x bump? Um, which I think is totally realistic, getting a 10x bump. Um, And that was like the main focus. And I think this relates to this general question of like, will this be good for everyone? Or will this just be good for this sort of like crypto elite, sort of like nomadic, and it's just going to like Dubai and wherever else opens up that's good for them. Um, And like, you know, I think the jurisdictions, at least El Salvador, I can't speak to the others because El Salvador is just so much further ahead on it so far. Um, The jurisdictions care a lot about how this is going to impact the average person. They want like 
basically economic development um, to be broadly distributed and not just like tourism. Like their tourism numbers are up 80% year over year, but they're not happy with that because they know that like tourism just leads to people buying up the coast, buying up the prime real estate. It doesn't actually really trickle down very well. Um, and so I think something that really stuck there was this narrative that we pitched them on Ukraine and how Ukraine ended up developing. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's like where it can kind of stick. Um, so, you know, I, I think like, um, I think it can be broadly distributed. I think that's like part of this sort of playbook for countries that we need to help put together and help coordinate on is like, you know, it's both these four laws that we need, but then we need to be very crystal clear how this helps the local country and why they should do this. I think in order to do that, you need to really think about what people are willing to pay for and what they're not. And I think, you know, when people were totally willing to stay in the U.S. prior to Tornado, uh, the U.S. charges extremely high rates for living there. And a lot of the people who were willing to stay there were staying in even expensive parts of the U.S., both from a cost of living perspective and tax perspective. And if you provide a good life experience, good networking, stuff like that, you can tax at extremely high levels, whether that's in uh, consumption form or, you know, capital gains is harder to execute, but, you you know, you can do a lot. And you, if you look at countries like Switzerland, they actually, you know, provide extremely good services and infrastructure with no capital gains tax, although they do have, you know, substantial income taxes. But the point is that I think if you tailor your policies specifically around attracting this business, letting it grow there easily. I think there are a lot of really productive ways to then extract revenue in exchange for providing that service and apply it well to your country's well-being. It just requires a very focused effort. And one thing I'm curious about, um, Nilran, as you were talking there, is when you're saying that the Bitcoin initiative failed in El Salvador. Can you go into a little bit more detail about what they were expecting and why that didn't work? Yeah, so I think they were expecting like a few things. They were expecting, I think, like fundamentally investment at sort of like a business level. They were expecting not just tourism. Of course, tourism's nice, but they were expecting basically people to relocate their companies there and to kind of be like a crypto hub. Um, and you can kind of see this in their actions. <laughs> then they um, found out that Bitcoiners actually like, like don't have companies and don't do anything productive except like waiting for like the HODL rapture. <laughs> yeah, they they learned that the hard way. And like I, I'm frankly, it took me a while to like realize that's actually the case in Bitcoin. Like hang out with them. I was like, what are you guys working on? And like it was always just crickets. Even like rich Bitcoiners didn't really have any business ideas. And like um, I think it's because they first had encountered like Jack Mahler's, like one of the few Bitcoiners like doing a lot. Um, and then they were like, oh, wow, like, this is really, we can get young energy. Like, they wanted more Jack Mahlers. This is who Bekele had met with. And instead, they got, like, a bunch of, like... <laughs> and then they got Max they got, Kaiser. Like, Max Kaiser instead of Jack Mahlers. And, like, that's actually a really <laughs> important point. Like, how do you get Jack Mahlers instead of Max Kaisers? Uh, and, like, okay, where else did it fail? I mean, it did succeed in terms of, like, it provides really easy remittance. 10% of the GDP of El Salvador is remittance-based. So on the margin, like, GDP had a good year, it grew of 10%, tourism mm. was up 80%. So like, those are like good numbers. Those are actually like really good numbers, but like they wanted to become more like a Singapore or Dubai. And you, the only way I see to do that is you get more of the Jack Mahlers. Um, and I think they just basically realized like there isn't enough of those people in Bitcoin for that to actually be a sort of engine of your economy. 
Um, you know, Strike is doing a ton in El Salvador. Like they've hired a lot of local El Salvadorians. They have like an office uh, in the best area. They give out like free, like half off happy hours if you like pay with lightning. So like they wanted basically strike. They wanted like a hundred to a thousand mm-hmm. strikes to re- relocate to El Salvador. And, but the reality is that I see is I just don't think this exists. Um, one, one important thing though, is like, you know, right now I'm in Buenos Aires and like El Salvador has actually done a really good job at like lightning as a payment layer. Uh, so both for remittances, but also for buying coffee and like Buenos Aires, a much larger, larger, you know, city than San Salvador and a way bigger country and richer just like doesn't even have a functioning money. Like we're going to Western Union with lines of like 200 people. We're like pulling out stacks of pesos to like buy coffee. It's like, uh, like actually having a functioning money is critical. And so El Salvador fixed that. The Chiva wallet is great, but they're not getting the like legion of Jack Mahlers that they wanted. It's interesting to note that if you look at how much money something someone like Strike is able to spend and just how much pocket change from crypto VCs and companies gets spent on things like, you know, lobbying or something. It's just like the, it's just a completely different scale. And so I think that, you know, this is one of those things where they would, they would have, like, they would have to see it. But I think that it's, I think we know how big that appetite would be. And maybe it does take something like Tornado for it to be a very easy decision for a lot of projects saying, to say, like, you know, okay, we're, you know, we're coming. So having discussed everything that's going on with Tornado Cash, I think it's worth asking what do we think is coming next? If this is the, opening shot in a war what do the next battles look like are they going to start seizing assets are other protocols of a particular type vulnerable what do you think is going to happen and who do you think is going to be the next uh run of targets okay i think that it will proceed more slowly than some people think. I don't know that the next step will be like, you know, the kind of fever dreams of people who have predicted the downfall of crypto where exchanges aren't allowed to interact with tornado tainted addresses after a number of pops. Maybe, maybe we'll see. Uh, I think there will, honestly, I expect it to proceed a lot like marijuana where it'll be like, It'll sort of continue to go. People will still have like have it. There will be pushback at a lot of, and it'll be a very popular issue for politicians to be pro on. But at the same time, the federal government does random enforcement actions at times that completely screw individual people's lives. Uh, while that's happening, I was I've been talking to people, and more so than I would have thought, because I try not to project my own tendencies onto others. So I was kind of surprised about this. But I think a surprising percentage of crypto wealth is ready to leave the U.S. if things get worse and go to places where at least they can transact or use their money safely um, or something like that. And so, in very very broad strokes, I would expect to see um, increasing sort of random like efforts from uh, the U.S. uh, bureaucratic agencies to make life sort of shitty for crypto, but in ways that don't completely nerf it. Uh, Simultaneously, some legal, like 
legal pushback from the crypto side that starts to build um, at the margin, people starting to leave the US just for safety and to like not get caught up in random actions, even though probably they'd be okay. So I think it's just going to be this big appetite at the margin for people to both get out of harm's way and get to friendly jurisdictions if they have money, while another set of people do launch, you know, pretty significant pushback in the U.S. on multiple angles, while uh, the main agencies like Treasury uh, do progressive and the SEC try to progressively tighten the noose. Marijuana is a good analogy here. Yeah, I think that uh, I think it could totally go that direction. I think there is a tail risk that it actually goes very quickly, like with Canada and the whole truckers protests where they just like, you know, just started like blanket, uh, you know, unbanking, you know, that's how you get bankless actually, the Canadian government just like comes for you. Um, and that, that terrified a lot of people and led to like a lot more of a rush for the exit. So there is, I think, factors that could accelerate that and kind of push it. I, I guess, I don't think the course is yet set. I think the most likely one is what you described with marijuana. I think there's like a actually fairly high percent chance that it could move in a Canada type way. Like the U.S. decides to, you know, like we are at the end of the debt cycle, as we talked about in the last podcast. So, you know, this is a time of like, they're talking about the great reset. It's very hard to do a great reset if there's a lot of money kind of floating in crypto. Um, because at the same time, you're trying to do monetary repression, like crypto is just like pumping uh, and pumps in proportion to that. It's sort of like, uh, we even kind of saw this with the Ukraine war, where like initially Russians started buying up a ton of Bitcoin because they knew Bitcoin was still connected to the global monetary system, whereas they could see that like the ruble wasn't going to be. So yeah, I kind of see like potentially a lot of different paths right now. I think the overall trend though is like, Regardless, the number of people leaving the U.S. is going to continue to go up and it's going to be like the early adopter of exit is someone who's like very worried about being arrested by the Dutch authorities. Like they just don't want that and they don't want to be like uh, the target of some random like FBI agents breaking down their door to ask them about like, what is crypto and like, is this, uh, <laughs> you know, are you like a hacker? So, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of in that slightly concerned bucket. Like I really don't want that to happen to me. So, and I've noticed a lot of the other early adopters of exit are kind of in that bucket. At the same time, I expect this number on an absolute and a percentage scale, well, actually on a percentage scale to be small, on an absolute scale, there is a lot of people who have already exited the US, uh, like quite a lot. And like, you know, a lot of uh, the top destinations are already full, like in Portugal, Mexico yeah. and Costa yeah. Rica. Uh, yeah, so like, you know, the percentage is like tiny, but like this is a very relevant group that's leaving. Um, and I think that'll like accelerate. Interestingly, if the US does do kind of this big clampdown, it just massively accelerates it. It's sort of like Canada, like completely misplayed their hand. So yeah, I see a few paths, but they kind of all, it's more like what rate do people exit versus I know that people will be exiting. That's clear to me now. Mm -hmm. If I want to can put my stake down in the ground a little bit with a prediction, I'm actually like very skeptical that the U.S. will misplay its hand to the degree of Canada. And I'm a little bit of a debt reset contrarian where I think that obviously something has to give in that regard and there will be some kind of restructuring. But I could just as easily, and this will take a little bit of time to play out, but I could just as easily see it being the case that the U.S. uses a debt restructuring plus adoption of crypto plus, you know, taxing and regulation of crypto inside its borders in order to sort of gain a dominant position after that reset. And so I think that people are substantially underpricing that and kind of overfitting 
to the past when they expect it to be this sort of very standard financial repression playbook, financial repression having sort of the technical meaning that you like force people to keep their money in the country, force bondholders to accept a, like a forced devaluation, uh, stuff like that. I think that there, there's enough counterweight and benefits from embracing crypto that I still, I think there's going to be significant pressure to do that and make it and make it happen. Yeah, I think, Tim, you really said it well when you said the U- the U.S. innately knows how to keep the goose with the golden egg. And I don't think it's so coincidental that all this is happening at the same time that we're getting news about, you know, 87,000 new IRS agents being hired and that there I think there have been leaked some memos that saying there is a real goal to enforce crypto tax payments and this is, I think, just the the classic playbook, you know, like if something is out of your jurisdiction, but it's making money, the, the answer is not to ban it, but to bring it into the fold. And I think that it's pretty likely that we see a U.S. future that while never reaching El Salvadoran levels of crypto friendliness are going to make it easy for you to make some money, and then give it to the government. I do think that over the last week or so, especially on crypto Twitter, there's been a lot of talk about various possible U.S. attacks on things like uh, Ethereum staking and things like that. And that's sort of a whole other topic for another day that I want to look at. This is just my broad line predictions. And I think there's a pretty interesting discussion to be had about what are the specific ways that a sufficiently motivated, although not omnipotent, um, you know, aspects of the U.S. government could attack crypto uh, based on you know specific weaknesses in proof of work, proof of stake, uh, dependence on exchanges, things like that. And so I think that's something I'd like to talk about at another time. But I think this has been a pretty good overview just for you know the broad contours of you know almost these like Tolstoyan like waves of history that are pushing like you know people in different directions. <laughs> What is a non-Tolstoyan uh, wave? Well, just like a, it's like a, just a wave made of water or grass. Or, I, I, I have a hard time <laughs> differentiating physical things because to me, I just lump mm-hmm. them into the category of physical. So water and grass are the same thing. That's right. That's right. Um, all right, uh, boys, thank you for discussing this with me. And if you are listening and uh, interested in the great war that is brewing, uh, make sure to turn into our next episode. So thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.